welcome to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose. I have a wonderful episode today. I have the honor of speaking with Bill Marler, who is the most prominent foodborne illness lawyer in America and a major force in food policy in the U.S. and around the world. I have been following Bill for years um, because for those of you who are old enough to remember, Bill represented Brianne Kiner back in the day, uh, 1993, who was the most seriously injured survivor of the historic jack-in-the-box E. coli 0157H7 outbreak. And he ended up winning her the a landmark $15.6 million settlement and really establishing the importance of food safety here in America. So you know, as somebody who, you know, I'm again, newly pregnant for those of you who don't know. And I, you know, so I'm really concerned about food safety, especially now, but generally as somebody who cares about food and cares about health a lot, and especially as we've seen food poisoning outbreaks shift from sort of cheap hamburgers at fast food joints to organic food and fresh produce and the things that I eat every single day and I'm not going to stop eating. Uh, it's been really scary to follow the news. And I had a lot of questions for him about how to keep myself and my family safe. So, you know, we went all over the place. I asked about sushi and oysters and high-end food versus commodity food and industrialized food versus farmer's markets. And I really learned a lot from Bill about what we can do. Obviously, your risk is never going to be zero, but there is actually quite a bit you can do to minimize your risk. And especially for those of us who are in particularly vulnerable positions like like pregnant women and children but but generally i mean nobody wants to get a serious pathogen and be taken out <laughs> of commission for potentially a, a really long time or or permanently so um i think this is a really important episode and if if the recent foodborne illness outbreaks and recalls have been a little frightening to you i actually i actually feel a little bit better after talking to him so this is bill marler and i really hope you enjoy Bill, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Welcome, welcome to the neighborhood, sort of. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure everybody knows yet, but I moved recently to Portland, Oregon, and Bill is up in Seattle. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's it's really fall all of a sudden. It is. It is. It turns a switch. So have you been to Voodoo Donuts yet? You know, I, I eat at Blue Star Donuts for grownups. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, the food here is fantastic. It's one of the reasons I like this city so much. And yeah, it's just been a really nice change of pace after living in some pretty big cities for the last 20 plus years. So it's, it's yeah, you'll, wonderful. You'll like Portland. You'll like Portland. Yeah. So I'm not sure everybody follows food safety as closely as I do. So, but you are the food safety guy for those who don't know. So how did you become the food safety guy? I had been out of law school for about four years when the Jack in the Box outbreak happened. And the Jack in the Box outbreak was sort of epicentered, you know, here in the state of Washington, Seattle area. There were about 700 people sick and uh, about uh, nearly a hundred children with acute kidney failure and four kids died. 
and the vast majority of those people were in sort of the Puget Sound region and mostly in sort of greater Seattle. And so I was a young lawyer and I wound up getting some of the first cases. I sort of became the legal face of the outbreak because you know, everyone didn't know anything about E. coli back in 1993. And I was at least able to say it. And (laughs) so, you know, I went from having one client to 10 to 100, and then started representing the really severely injured children, got really into the discovery, you know, uncovered a bunch of, you know, fairly damning information about Jack in the Box. And in 1995, some of the first cases resolved. And I thought I'd go back to sort of just being a regular lawyer. And then lawyers and people from around the country started referring food cases to me. And I did the Adwala E. coli outbreak. And after that, I decided that I'd start my own law firm. So I hired two of the lawyers who defended Jack in the Box. And we started Marler Clark in 1998, which has been 20 years ago, just last month. And, you know, we do nothing but food cases now all over the world. And so I love my job. I love, you know, representing the people who've been sickened. But I also spend a lot of time advocating for food safety, speaking, you know, all over the world on food safety topics. So it's a great job. Yeah, I remember that first case. I was in like middle school or something, and it was such. (laughs) Sorry, so was I, sort of. Well, I feel like (laughs) half my listeners weren't born yet, so. (laughs) But uh, it was such a big deal back then, and like you said, people did had never heard of E. coli, didn't know how to say it. But you know, I feel like it's really changed. Like in the last five years, especially, I feel like the number of outbreaks and the frequency we're hearing. I mean, it's almost to the point where. You can't open the internet without hearing about right. a new outbreak every single week. What is going on? Well, I'll sort of slightly disagree with you on sort of the frequency issue. Although, if we were just talking about uh, 2018, I would completely agree with you. Okay. Putting this whole thing in sort of context of what's been going on, and then, you know, there's frankly the politics of this as well. So, One thing that's happened is we're importing more food products and we're not inspecting those food products as much as we should. We're also eating much more fresh fruits and vegetables than we were a decade or two ago. Wow. Fresh fruits, fresh fruits and, which is good. Right. (laughs) But it's also is from the recent CDC analysis. Those are also higher risk items because there's no kill step that you don't cook it. Right. So. You have imported food products, you have a change in dietary habits going on, you've got population increasing, you've got more immune compromised people. If you sort of put those in context, foodborne illnesses have, for the most part, remained relatively flat uh, as it relates to the population. Hmm. The other thing that's happening too is we're much better we, the health departments, CDC, state and local health departments, are much better at tracking these cases than they were 25 years ago. Sure. Uh, we're now using genetic fingerprinting, whole genome sequencing. We're much better at investigating these cases and tying them down. That being said, you know, when I first started doing these cases back in 93, 
from about 93 to 99, about 100% of my revenue in my law firm was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. As of about a month ago, that was probably close to zero. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we've had Cargill had a, a big recall of meat that was contaminated with E. coli O26, which is a pathogenic strain. And then just yesterday, uh, JBS announced a recall of salmonella in, ha in hamburger that's sickened, you know, 50, but that number is probably going to be 250 here in the next couple of days. So I would say for the most part, as it relates to red meat and, and beef, we've actually made some pretty significant improvements, but, you know, that was not without lots of fighting. USDA deemed E. coli an adulterant, E. coli 057 adulterant, which means that you can't sell it. The industry fought that. That sounds kind of bizarre. <laughs> does it though? Uh, yes, does it though? <laughs> and but they eventually, thank goodness for the courts. The courts said that's silly, and and you know the industry and government sort of figured out how to work together to do testing and. You know, and our meat supply is much safer uh, than it was 25 years ago. That being said, you know, we're seeing a lot more outbreaks linked to fresh fruits and vegetables and FDA inspected products. What we're seeing, what, and I think what you, when you do open up the internet, and I love that way, to, the, the term to think about it that way, opening up the internet. If you open up the internet, I think probably what most consumers and you and I are feeling is all these recalls. Right. And the recalls, this might sound counterintuitive, the recalls actually, to me, are an indicator of a healthy food safety system. Sure. That means that the system is catching it. And even if there are a few people that are getting sick, which I think is unacceptable, but the, the recall system is working. And the main reason it's working is, is that recalls are expensive. Right. Even if you don't sicken somebody, recalls are super expensive. And to me, that was the driving economic force to change the beef industry's idea of how to do things. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Recalls of hamburger were almost a daily occurrence. Hmm. 500,000 pounds here, a million pounds there. It was a constant boom, boom, boom. We don't see that anymore because they're doing testing internally and then they're throwing the stuff away or turning it into some cooked item and not shipping it. So there's no recall. So there's no expense there. Exactly. So, but they're making the product safer that way, and it's not getting into the marketplace. Amazing. So, would you predict that that's happening with produce, or going to start happening more? And that's what that's what the recalls are a representation of. Yeah, and it, believe me, you know, it freaks people out. It, you know, and you can have sort of recall fatigue, so to speak. <laughs> oh, geez, what is safe anymore? But it actually is. It's a way for the food system to really work effectively. Yeah. Do you credit it mostly with the cost of the recalls 
as opposed to regulation by the USDA. So for the people who don't know, the USDA regulates meat. And do they do dairy and eggs as well? USDA does uh, red meat. So they do cows, they do pigs, they do chickens. They sort of jointly do eggs. Jointly with the FDA? FDA, yes. They jointly do eggs. FDA does milk. Uh, FDA does all fish except for catfish, and the F- and USDA does catfish. What a shit show. <laughs> it's crazy, <laughs> so to speak. And, and like a, a pizza with cheese and pepperoni on it, they don't do it together, but if it was just cheese, it would be the FDA. So, and then there are lots of other agencies that are involved in food safety that, you know, have other acronyms that make no sense. Mike Taylor, who's who was head of FSIS after Jack in the Box, and he was head of FDA during the rollout of the Food Safety Modernization Act. It was quoted as, you know, saying, you know, if you were starting a food safety system, you wouldn't start it the way it looks today. You would have a unified system, but that's just not how it is. Unless you're so, a crazy person. Yeah, yeah. But there's, you know, historically, not to bore you, but historically, you know, the way this whole thing came about, it's kind of actually kind of, at least for me, is fascinating. You know, food safety in America came directly from Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle. That's the beginning. But back then, the only thing we were really selling, you know, in in mass quantities was meat and dairy, Mm. you know, fresh fruits and vegetables we're much more regional and, you know, you, you know, you're way too young to remember, but, you know, you used to be able to go to when a grocery store in the wintertime and you couldn't buy bananas sure, because they were out of, you know, and <laughs> out of season, so, out of season. And so uh, now they fly them in in first class bundles, you know, in, the, in an airplane from, you know, Chile, but the food safety system for me sort of grew up from, 1906 up to World War II. After World War II, that's when the FDA picked, started picking up the other pieces of the puzzle because that's when we started mass producing, frankly, everything. Sure. And that's where the FDA picked it up. Anyway, it became very, it's become complex to say the least. Well, on that note, then, like how much of this is related to the food chain, the industrial food chain, and the fact that there are just so many steps from the farm to your plate compared to how it was back in the good old days. Right. So we used to die a lot in the good old days from all kinds of other bacterial things, you know, and, you know, but it also predated antibiotics. So it would be interesting if you could do sort of a a unethical case study to see how it all work. <laughs> but there's no question that, in my view, industrialization of our food supply is sort of a double-edged sword when it comes to food safety. If if everything is done correctly and, you know, you've got a, a company who's well-funded, who has, you know, money to put into you know, food safety systems and HACCP plans and blockchain and all the stuff that's there, you can make a system that functions super well uh, and that it's 
enormous. The problem is, is if something goes wrong, if someone doesn't pay attention to a, you know, a supplier, if someone, you know, short changes something or something just strange happens, it gets blown up into a big proportion. And so when you have an outbreak, it's a big one. It's like a noticeable one. Half a so. billion eggs. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that was exactly. so crazy. Exactly. That, to me, was a regulatory problem. Um, I went to that facility, got a court order to go there, and you know went to Iowa. And I've been doing this a long time. And even I was sort of just shocked at the scope of these massive chicken houses that almost went on for as far as the eye could see. Um, and, you know, things are pretty flat in Iowa. So, <laughs> so that I can see far. <laughs> and, and, but what was, what was just shocking to me too was just how poorly run these very expensive operations were. I mean, we had several feet of chicken manure inside these operations, Oof. you know, so big, pushing out the metal metal walls because it was there so much and we had to put on hazmat suits that we had rebreathers on so it so disgusting that to go through it <laughs> and it was so bad that the clothes that i wore underneath the hazmat suit when i put them in my you know suitcase i mean they weren't dirty but i put them in my suitcase to go home by the time i got home my wife goes you have to get rid of all of your clothes that were in the suitcase. It was that bad. That is so gross. So, so. right. So, I mean, that's one of the problems with the industrial food chain, right? Like it becomes, I mean, food becomes a commodity at that point. And then it comes down to the cheapest way you can produce it. Right. And so you have companies wanting to cut every penny out of every second of the day to produce this food. And then you have these government agencies who are responsible to keep it safe, which is wonderful, but it's expensive. It's hard to do. And there's this constant political battle over funding and what they're allowed to check and where they're allowed to go exactly. and the facilities. I rarely read anything about how wonderful they're doing. No, it's a constant battle. And, you know, food has a really sort of a special place in most people's lives. And food shouldn't be a commodity in the sense that a, a widget or a screw or a, a tennis ball is a commodity. Yeah, it's a biological process. It's exactly. And ecological and, as well. And you have to, and, and it's to sustain us, you know, in, on right. multiple levels. And so that's why, on average, I try to, to the extent possible, you know, our family tries to sort of eat more locally. You know, we do go to our farmer's market. We have a small garden. We try to simplify things a bit because after 25 years of doing this, you know, I've learned that the more complex you make food, the more you turn it from a thing of sustenance to a commodity, the less nutrition it is and the more likely it is to be you know, potentially contaminated with a pathogen or a virus that can sicken or kill you. But then how do you feed several billion people? Not everybody lives in Portland or Seattle where you can have, you know, enough space to, you know, plant a garden. You know, there's some reality things that you have to deal with. 
and how to oversee that all from a from a regulatory uh, sort of police state point of view. Yeah, good. I'm glad you brought that up because I was curious. So that's what I've done. So I read basically everything you post <laughs> on Facebook and Twitter. And well, there's a lot of reasons as anybody who's been following me knows, but there's a lot of reasons I've for the most part opted out of the industrialized food chain. A big reason is because the food just doesn't taste as good when they treat it that way. But a huge one, especially now that I'm pregnant again, is safety. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's gross. Like, and even, you know, even in the produce farms, right. like they just dump sludge on there sometimes for getting the clean it properly and and the outbreaks are are very serious and very real and um yeah it's hard to do you know it's it's yeah. very difficult to do right. when i take it super seriously like i am now as as a right. pregnant woman i don't eat on an airplane sometimes yeah. airplanes are long flights yeah. <laughs> uh, i i won't eat from a salad bar i won't eat from a buffet you know you and i should go out <laughs> you know, let's, we should do uh, we should do dinner because that sounds exactly how I eat. So or don't. So yeah, yeah. but but again, like you said, I, it's not necessarily practical to have my own eat everything from my own garden in the backyard. So I end up going to farmers markets. I find small specialty grocery stores. I go to local butchers that know the farms they get their food from. It's it's expensive. It's a lot of work, right. but that's what I. It's the only thing I can think of to do. <laughs> right. No, 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 no. I, I agree. And not to frighten you about th- how you do those those choices, but, you know, I've also seen where greed and inattention to detail can sometimes stick itself into that, you know, localized idea of a good agriculture. I've, you know, I've seen, you know, farmer's markets where, they say it's local, but it's actually brought in from Dole, you know, 50 miles away and they're selling it as local produce and, or, you know, or sometimes frankly, local farmers who believe because they're local, you know, the rules of nature and biology and pathogens don't apply to them. Right. That somehow miraculously, you know, these things don't harm you if they're local. And that's a problem. Now, I've had some of your listeners or viewers, you know, might uh, disagree with me on sort of my feelings about not drinking raw milk. But I've had those conversations, you know, at our own farmer's market with a farmer who I know who is selling raw milk. And I'm like, man, if it's a little kid or a pregnant woman or somebody who's immune compromised and it's got a pathogen in it, you could be in a lot of problems. Not only would the victim would be in a lot of problems, but you will be too. I don't know. It's 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 tough. Yeah, it's tough. and that's a great point. I don't want to try to say that farmers markets are always safe, or you know, the, biology is biology. If you are not careful with what how you handle food, obviously there's a lot of risk there. But generally, the more steps you cut out of mass processing, it's really the processing and a lot of the. And, and the size of the farms, but the, the the way they they process the food is usually you know one little piece of machinery gets contaminated, and then tons of food that goes out into your favorite uh, salad bar <laughs> ends up contaminated. Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you a, I think a, a a real world example of that. There was a spinach E. coli outbreak in two thousand six, uh, August September two thousand six. 
I represented a hundred and some odd people, five people who died. It was a terrible, terrible outbreak. Ultimately, we were able to link it to one 20-acre plot of organically grown spinach. It was in the second year of a third-year transition to fully organic. And they cut it all together. They bunched it up in crates, and they took it to a, a facility where it, along with a lot of other spinach, was all processed you know, in one day and shipped across the country. There was some um, wild pigs that had gotten into that field and done their business. But the whole field wasn't contaminated. It was just, you know, parts of it. And so if you think about it, if that field had grown to sort of normal size and they had cut it in bunches and you bought it in bunches in your grocery store, as opposed to having it all cut at once and processed all together, triple washed and bagged and shipped to Wisconsin, there likely would have been no one sick. And to me, that sort of is the is the risk of, you know, consuming industrialized agriculture. Localized is not without, you know, any risk. But when you have a situation like I just described, that's where you see these big outbreaks and a lot of people getting sick or dying. Yeah. And, and you know, I know this is an anecdote and I'm going to knock on some wood. But since I've started eating this way, I mean, it's been... 10, 15 years since I've had food poisoning. And as a, you know, as a kid, my, my husband's stories are, are the, are the worst because he grew up in Las Vegas. And oh, <laughs> he would, yeah. he would go to the buffets and the whole family would just get sick yearly. Like it happened all the time and they, they never put it together. What, what was going on there? So yeah, just from my personal experience, eating in restaurants that support local farmers and local agriculture that care about the ingredients and the quality and buying from those people myself. And it's been pretty effective on my end. When's the last time you've had food poisoning? <laughs> I can't. It's been 25 or 30 years. I travel all over the world, but I'm, I'm much more of a defensive eater than sort of your average person. So, you know, it's sort of like, if you know too much. Right. Actually, I want to talk for a second about the different kinds of food poisoning and mm -hmm. foodborne illnesses, because I think it gets confusing. Whenever I read about an E. coli outbreak or a salmonella outbreak, it's these things that incubate for a week that, you know, it's people are spraying out of both ends. Sorry to get too right. graphic. Um, right. And, you know, I've never experienced anything like that. Like, t I find that, you know, I've, I've only had a sickness from eating twice and my husband's had it a lot more and we've talked about this and it, it's usually one of those things where it's really obvious what caused it or it feels like it is like everybody mm -hmm. ate the same thing everybody got sick right usually within a day they throw up for a couple of hours and then it's over you know and they never right. really report it to anyone I, clearly this isn't salmonella or e coli right. from what i've read about it but what right. is that that seems like the most common so about 48 million Americans get a foodborne illness every year. And the vast majority of that, some 32 million, it's norovirus. Norovirus, the cruise ship virus, it's a, it's called, a, it's, called a <laughs> it's called a calcovirus. It's kind of a hard shelled virus. It, it's very hardy, can stay on fomite surfaces, hard surfaces for a long period of time. It, especially in the winter when people are crowded in small you know, areas like cruise ships, 
it's easily transmitted both through food or through airborne vomit. Uh, so it's, it's very easy to transmit. This is how kids get sick in those, you know, those ball things that they play in, those kinds of things. It's some kid vomits in there and spreads to everybody else. So that's the vast majority of people who get sick and people get sick within 12 hours of that. That's most people who go, oh, I had foodborne illness and it would lasted for a day. That's what it was. Could have been staph aureus. Lots of people carry staph. Some people carry it and it doesn't affect them at all. But, you know, if, it, if somebody sneezes on the salad bar and staph gets on there and the next person eats it that's sensitive, they're going to get sick within, you know, a few hours. Those sorts of things are fairly self-limiting and you may be sick for a day or two and get better. You know, then you start looking at some of these really nasty pathogens. E. coli 0157 has an incubation period about three to four days. And about 10% of those cases will develop uh, acute kidney failure, uh, which may lead to death. Uh, salmonella sickens, you know, 1.4 million Americans every year. Um, it's a fairly significant killer of people, but it's because more people get sick. There are 2,000 varieties of salmonella. Wow. Um, and, you know, some of them are very localized, you know, in countries or areas within a country. So they're kind of sometimes easy to track and kind of interesting. You know, you have listeria, which you're hearing a lot more about, and especially as a pregnant woman, you know, they're telling you, you know, stay away from deli meats and cheeses and, you know, raw milk and things like that, primarily because listeria, which fortunately does not sicken a lot of people in the U.S., but it hospitalizes 99% and kills about a third. I was involved in that terrible uh, cantaloupe outbreak in 2011, where 33 Americans died from eating cantaloupe. I mean, that's just stunning. Stunning. Mostly what I see are the E. coli, the salmonella, listeria cases. I'm involved in a listeria case in South Africa right now, where 1,000 people were sickened and 200 died. And so I'm actually helping on litigation in South Africa terrible, terrible situation. I actually have a question about listeria. Um, I have I have a lot of friends who are chefs and mm -hmm. some of them own really big operations. And they seem to believe that it's very much a hygiene related issue, at least in terms of containing it within a restaurant, you know, and, and when I think, uh, you know, when, you know, like you said, the most recent outbreaks have been cantaloupe and fruits and vegetables, but right. what we're warned about, especially as pregnant women is sushi and deli meat and, right. cheese. and cheese. And I know that part of that is because it can survive in, in a refrigerator, <laughs> but, exactly. but can you talk about the hygiene factor and how picky should we be about our restaurants? For on Listeria, it is absolutely because uh, Listeria grows really well at refrigerator temperatures. Listeria is a common environmental bug. It's kind of everywhere. But if it gets onto a product like a cheese or a deli meat or cut cantaloupe and it goes into your refrigerator, a lot of times it stays there for a while. And listeria is a bug that has grown up environmentally and evolutionarily 
alongside our desire to refrigerate things. We decided to refrigerate stuff to keep food longer and to knock down pathogens like E. coli and salmonella. And Listeria goes, hey, this is awesome, and I can grow here. And so Listeria is it's a bug of convenience that just can grow well at refrigerator temperatures. And illnesses are, um, you know, you can handle so much E. coli. You can handle so much salmonella. You can handle uh, so much Listeria if you're a normal, healthy person or even an immune-compromised person if what you're ingesting is relatively low. But if it Listeria incubates in the back of your refrigerator for six weeks or six months and then you eat that cheese, you're going to have a problem. Same with the potato salad out on the picnic bench that you know now has a bunch of salmonella in it because it's grown at a temperature that salmonella likes to grow at. So your chefs are right that listeria and frankly salmonella and E. coli are bugs of, you know, they're fecal or in origin. So they it's a cleanliness issue. But for listeria specifically, it's really about, you know, cleaning cutting boards and cleaning slicers and cleaning processing equipment very well because especially in cold, wet environments, listeria can hang in there and grow and then slough off and sicken people. So you're saying I can eat expensive sushi. You can eat, <laughs> you can eat you know, I would say you can eat on average things that are super fresh. Mm-hmm. It's again, it's not without any risk, but if you came to my house and I fly fish in front of my house uh, and I catch, you know, a trout or a salmon, I don't eat raw fish, but I would have no worry eating that raw fish off the beach, sure. you know, cutting it up. The likelihood of that having a pathogen on it or listeria on it would not concern me at all. But if I took that fish and I cut it up, I smoked it. And if somehow some listeria got on it and I put it in the back of my refrigerator for a month and a half, I would be worried about that. And that's, that's sort of, it's a time temperature thing. Mm. So eating, eating more locally, eating more fresh, eating more, it's not again without zero, it's not zero risk, but it's a lot less risk. Okay. Then I'll confess that when I first found out I was pregnant with my first child, I was in Tokyo. And we literally had reservations for a three Michelin star sushi restaurant that night. And I'm like, I'm going (laughs) and I'm going to be fine. (laughs) And I did. And it was wonderful. Um, The worst part was skipping the sake. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting because, right. I mean, yeah. So don't eat gas station and airport sushi. No, no, no. Ever. Yeah. There was a, a, a horrible, it was a salmonella outbreak. Uh, probably, I think it was 2012, and it was. Uh, it's actually on the CDC website, and it's. Uh, it was salmonella outbreak linked to tuna scrape, S C R A P E, and what they found was that these big factory ships were catching, you know, these tuna out in the middle of the Pacific. They would, you know, cut off all the good parts, and they'd throw 
the leftovers into the hold frozen. And then they would, when the ship was being cleaned and, you know, refitted, the tuna out in the hold would be brought out and literally some guys would be scraping it. And then so your put, spicy tuna rolls come from putting it, yes, <laughs> putting it in plastic bags, freezing it and shipping it back to the U.S. And there was an outbreak of a very specific kind of salmonella that's only found in the sort of the uh, Indian subcontinent. So it was pretty easy to figure out how this whole thing happened. But, yeah, everybody who got sick were eating, uh, you know, these tuna rolls out of, you know, the gas station. So, Oof. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do that, guys. Don't do that. <laughs> you know, if you're a 20 year old, I suppose you can get by, but, you know, you know not so much. Only Everybody. eat nuts from gas stations. Exactly. <laughs> well, speaking of seafood and being pregnant, oysters and Vibrio. And I've, I've heard you mention a few times that actually climate change is impacting the the oyster thing. So generally, what goes on with oysters? I, I never really quite understand how. Like, is it, are they contaminated in the water? Like, yes. they come, okay, yeah. Okay. Can you talk yeah, about so that? So they're filter feeders. They're spectacular for our environment. Uh, there's a, a an organization on the island I live on that will bring you bags of oysters that are can't produce, but you can put them on your beach. And it helps filter the water. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a bunch of those until one of my neighbor kids thought it was cruel that the oysters were in a bag. And so he cut all the oysters to let them be free. So, <laughs> so, a little so, activist. Yeah, I was. I mean, in some respects, I, I just love the kid. It wasn't really he, he didn't quite understand what was going on, but it, I love the kid. But so they're filter feeders. And if you have a bacterial problem. For example, we've had some outbreaks uh, north from uh, oysters from the, from British Columbia of norovirus, and they've been absolutely specifically linked to uh, sewage outfall from uh, the city of, of Victoria. Hmm. And you know, as water warms, you know, you've seen Campylobacter outbreaks in the Willapa Bay. Campylobacter is a you know, chicken, cow, human pathogen. So we haven't seen, I'm trying to think, I haven't seen uh, E. coli outbreak, but we've seen, you know, as it, it's logical as temperatures warm, you know, we're going to see more and more of this. And that's why a lot of the oyster growing facilities, even in the state of Washington, are getting toeholds in, you know, further north up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So. Because they're trying to, A, stay away from sewers and going to where waters are going to likely remain cooler, at least in the next, hopefully, for the next decade or so. And how are these generally detected? Is it just first when somebody gets sick? Do they test them coming out of the water? Or? There's some combination of both of those. But, you know, testing food products is helpful, but it's you can't test all the food or you wouldn't have anything to eat. And so a lot of times, most outbreaks are figured out by the canaries in the coal mine that are the consumers that are consuming it, whether it be oysters or hamburgers or cantaloupe. Yeah. And does does cooking help with? Yes. Those? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. barbecued yeah. oysters are okay. Barbecue oysters are fine. You know, raw oysters, 
wouldn't be something that would be on Bill Marler's menu. <laughs> and I've, I've gone out with my wife to a nice restaurant and, you know, invariably she'll order raw oysters. And, you know, I think it's partly just to watch me squirm. <laughs> it's a lot like my children when they were teenagers, instead of sneaking out for beers, they snuck out for hamburgers. So, <laughs> so. Well, they're so good for you. Not hamburgers, the uh, the oysters. They're so healthy. And I'm curious, so you won't even eat an oyster at a nice restaurant? No. Because you don't think they, they're capable of detecting? No, it's like I wouldn't necessarily follow the Bill Marler rules of dining at a fine restaurant. It, it A lot of it has to do just with what I do every day. Sure, sure. You know, I have a couple of orthopedic doctor friends who are constantly thinking their knees hurt. So, you know, and and so I just avoid things sometimes, not for necessarily any particular rational reason, but it's because I've just had so much experience with the downside of it that it doesn't make the meal enjoyable if I'm sort of reminiscing about, you know, Mr. Smith who died from Vibrio from eating raw oysters. And I do that. Yeah, so, yeah. so I'd rather just like, you know, order a well-done steak and a really good bottle of wine. So, I get it. So. I get it. Yeah, because I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I when I'm not pregnant, I would certainly not eat, you know, the dollar oyster happy hour right. behind a bar in an alley. <laughs> but, right. but uh, you know, there's some amazing oyster bars in New York and in sure. everywhere in yeah. the places I eat. And the oysters are, I mean, they're usually from very cold water places, Japan, Hokkaido. Um, The Alaskan ones are delicious. (laughs) The colder the water, actually, they taste better. Um, And they also, they have a lot of quality control. You know, they have somebody out there hand selecting every single night where they're getting their their stuff from. And I just don't have the willpower to say no. No, I mean, (laughs) you know, I I grew up on the Hood Canal. And in the summers, this is in the 70s and 80s, we would or, you know, in the 60s, you know, we'd eat raw oysters off the beach all the time, you know, and, but that's changed as, you know, the, the, although there's still oysters out there, three quarters of the season, they're shot because of, you know, sewer issues, uh, because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, septic tanks, as Mm -hmm. opposed, you know, and so you've just more people out there, you know, the population's quadrupled in the last 20 years. So, it, it happens, you know. So is that months that end in R thing true? <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, but I don't know. You know, the bottom line is cold water, winter months, you're probably safer. Yeah. The further north you're getting your oysters from, the better. I, I know that pisses off a lot of people from the Gulf Coast oysters. I won't touch those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll touch so, those. Yeah, There's so many. So. I mean, just the spills that have happened in the Gulf. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, then, you know, and, then, and those those oysters are probably, you know, working, you know, double time to clean up some of that. And they're probably, you know, doing a great job of cleaning up the water, but they're absorbing all of that into their bodies. Yeah. So yummy. <laughs> so can we talk about Chipotle for a second? Sure. What the my, hell? <laughs> my friends at Chipotle, you know, setting aside 2015, which was a really, really, really bad year for Chipotle. And 
I've, and I thought a lot about this because, you know, I was in litigation with them for a long time, but, you know, I think they had put, put themselves up on such a high pedestal. And, you know, if you're going to use that as a marketing methodology and you're going to compare yourself to others, people are going to be, you know, looking to knock you off your shelf. And I think that when they were so focused on the marketing of who they were, they stopped paying attention to some of the details about food safety. Still, though, I mean, I mean, I feel like it's not getting better. The problem they had in Iowa recently was a norovirus outbreak. I think, or no, it was just, it was uh, Clostridium perfringens, uh, which was uh, they were uh, this one restaurant was you know, reheating things and keeping cold things hot and hot things cold. And it's that it's like a buffet thing. And it that's what happened and sickened a bunch of people. But, you know, at the same time, you know, McDonald's had, you know, a cyclospora outbreak linked to salads that sickened, seriously sickened several hundred people. And we just sort of you know, the public just sort of brushed it off as... Because we expect that out of McDonald's. <laughs> exactly. It's sort of, it's kind of like, you know, not to get political on you, but it's kind of like we have this guy in the White House that does insane things every day. Then he does another insane thing and you're just like, oh yeah, well, he's just done another insane thing. <laughs> right, right. And so it's like decades sort of, of tax fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, or whatever. And, or whatever. Uh, and uh, so... You kind of, I think Chipotle built themselves up in a way that they had to keep perfect. Yeah. You know, even my friend James Marsden, who came in as their food safety guy, uh, the fact that he's leaving um, after, you know, leaving next year, you know, became a huge story in the business side of, of things where normally that wouldn't even get reported. And I'm not taking Chipotle's side for this, but it's like, you know, if you really want to market yourself as something different than the rest, which I, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I disagree with what they were doing because there were lots of stuff they were doing that were great. I know they had me fooled. I was excited. <laughs> but they got to live, you got to live and breathe it. Yeah. It's, it's the ethical side of stuff. You know, a good example of that was, you know, early on the Odwalla E. coli outbreak. Mm. Odwalla you know, was, you know, it's natural and pasteurized, you know, they were donating money to all kinds of great causes, you know, it was all organic and lovely. And they went to Grateful Dead concerts and everything was happy. <laughs> and, you know, until they tried to sell their juice to the US Army, and the Army said, your juice is not fit for human consumption, we're not going to buy it. But then Adwala continue to sell it to little kids and pregnant women. And you kind of have to ask yourself, what were you thinking? And the answer to the question was, we thought it, because it was natural and unpasteurized that it was so healthy for you that these things just wouldn't harm us or harm you or harm our customers. It's like a lack of understanding of the importance of basic biology and hygiene. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so hard at that scope. Odwal is massive. Yeah, it is now because Coke bought them. Because but Coke be bought them. Because, because Coke bought them for cheap after after they got fined $1.4 million by the feds and after I sued them. That doesn't sound like enough. 
Yes. So, no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. But it was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this. It is hard. I mean, and I'm skeptical always of any company that claims to be above the fray and wants to be giant. Like, I don't see how those two things are compatible. And I don't know what the answer is, you know, but that you just, yeah, it's really hard to see how big industrial scale can go hand in hand with, I mean, unless you're doing something completely different and spending a ton of money and it's really expensive, yeah. how, to, how, to, how to keep that safe. I agree with you. I struggle to think of a company that has done both. I think some people just, in, you know, some companies just have just embraced, you know, the giant nature of things and then realized that that's what they wanted to be. And they just adapted to how they, you know, Taco Bell or Jack in the Box. I mean, they make it so that it's almost virtually impossible to undercook or underdo anything there because they have so many systems in place because they don't want to have another disaster. Yeah. They make it 16-year-old burger flipper proof. You know, yeah. I mean they just they just try to make it so that, you know, they're not going to have a problem. Right, but then it's really bad for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in other ways. So. Right, in other ways. Yeah, my my hopes are high for sweet green. I don't know if you're familiar right. with them. They the food is so good and they tend to use their their locations and source locally from there but you know it hasn't been that long yet so we'll we see. have we have a, a a restaurant that is in Seattle they have a couple of them that are uh, local sourced agriculture that a lot of the people in my office because it's close to a lot of people in my office go there and get salads or used to go there and get salads and sandwiches and then they recently had an e coli outbreak oops oops yeah it's a bummer yeah, it happens. I have a frenemy. I like that term. Frank Giannis from Walmart. And he's their head vice president, head of food safety. And he's written some pretty interesting books about food safety culture. Now, Frank is on the far end of gigantic stuff. But the thought process of keeping focus on food safety and creating a culture that allows you know, that allows somebody at an odd wallet to go, hey, wait a second, if the army won't buy our juice, maybe we should think about maybe pasteurizing or not using apples off the ground. I mean, <laughs> creating a culture where people can communicate that so you don't have these unmitigated disasters. And because I tell everybody, you know, when I speak to industry, there's not one foodborne illness outbreak I've ever been involved in that when you look at it from beginning to end, that you could not have fixed it before it blew up. Right. There's always warning signs. And it's just, do you have the right culture and people to kind of get you to a point where you can sort of see those? Wow. Yeah. So on that note, what are the resources that average humans who, we do our best to eat clean and eat healthy, but sometimes you do take a long airplane ride. Sometimes you are in a hotel at a conference, whatever, and you're sort of at other people's mercies. What, what should we do? What, what extra can we do? So, um, as a, as a guy who made, uh, you know, diamond status on Delta in the <laughs> first three months of 2018, you know, I travel all the time and, you know, I can't, afford to go down 
with a cold, let alone foodborne illness. So, you know, when I travel, I just try to keep things sort of simple. I think about when I go out to meals, you know, I do tend to have my, you know, meat cooked more than most people do. And instead of having a salad, I'll have cooked vegetables. I can catch up on a salad at my house when I can control my own environment, you know, a day from now. There's no reason to put that in someone else's hands. I don't eat street food. And, you know, I pay attention to the, you know, water I drink. And, you know, I probably have a, a good glass of wine or a glass of scotch or whatever. And I don't really think too much about worrying about that. But I tend to just eat a little more when I'm traveling or at conferences. I stay away from buffets. Or if I go to a buffet, I go right to the thing that's so hot that it'll, <laughs> you know, that'll make sure that it'll burn you. And the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but so I pay a little more attention to that. And in terms of resources online, or if we do get sick, reporting, things like that. So a couple, I mean, one of the cool things about opening the internet, I'm going to use that, I have to admit, I'm going to use that term from you. When you do open up the internet, there's a lot more resources. Yelp has great resources now, you can kind of check out restaurants. A lot of cities have uh, grading systems at restaurants that are helpful. Does Yelp have food poisoning stuff on there? Or food yeah, yeah, safety yeah, stuff. Yeah. Crazy! I didn't realize that. No, no, no. But you can you can like Google a restaurant on Yelp or whatever they call it when you search on Yelp. But and to see if that restaurant's had complaints. I've I've actually figured out foodborne illness outbreaks by u- utilizing Yelp, where oh. somebody's called me. Crazy! And they're saying, I think I got sick at you know, Sam's restaurant and I'll Google, you know, Sam's restaurant. And then all of a sudden you see 30 hmm. people complaining of being sick. And I've turned that over to the health department and they figured out that there was a salmonella outbreak. Crazy. So, so there's, there's those kinds of things. A lot of cities have online inspection reports. So, you know, especially if you're going out to a, an expensive, nice dinner at a restaurant, you can sometimes go to a city, Seattle has it. Don't know if Portland does, but you can go online and see kind of like the last 10 inspection reports from that restaurant. Hmm. Um, there's also a website, a very interesting fellow from New York started it about four or five years ago, and it's called IWasPoisoned.com. <laughs> and, and it's fascinating. It's almost as funny as Barf Blog. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but IWasPoisoned.com is really interesting because he's trying to create a, uh, sort of a big data situation where if enough people complain, people notice. And he's actually, in 2015, his website was the one that sort of outed Chipotle's two norovirus outbreaks, the one in California and the one in Boston. His site works really well when the outbreak's big because you see the the spike. It's not so good picking up small outbreaks because not everybody logs on and does it. But if everybody did, you'd have better information. So I think there are some things that consumers can do when they're going out to restaurants. And then as it relates to you know going to grocery stores, again, I think if you're a betting person, eating more locally and eating things that are fresher and don't travel enormous distances, I think there's other reasons to be concerned about that from a carbon footprint point of view. But I think just kind of keeping things a little simpler 
is a, you know, a good rule of thumb. Which is generally healthier anyway. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I learned so much. I hope everybody else did too. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Foodist Podcast. I'm Daria Rose. And if you're interested in upgrading your own health style, learning how to get healthy and lose weight without dieting and without all of the suffering that it brings, then head over to my website, Summer Tomato, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. When you sign up, you'll get a free starter kit that'll teach you the basics of how to start changing the way you think about food, health, and weight loss. You'll also get a free chapter from my book, Foodist, called The Myth of Willpower that explains the science behind why the no pain, no gain mantra of the weight loss industry is the absolute worst approach to getting healthy. So come over to Summer Tomato and sign up. We have a fantastic community and we would love, love, love to have you. Thanks for listening and I will see you next time.